Thank you, Kenton. And it's, I, I said this last week at the Kessner campus. I wish you could see the view from up here. It's so good to see all of you here in worship, at least this much of you. We're glad that you're with us and have come, made an effort to be here in person to worship. No question God has done remarkable things through our online services throughout the COVID season, but there's, there's, I think we all understand there's been something missing, and it's good to be together in person to worship God. So we're, we're in a series uh, called Choosing Joy in the Book of Philippians. Most of you know that in case you're joining in or you haven't been tracking along with us. Philippians is this letter Paul wrote to a group of Christians living in Philippi, a city in Europe, the first one of the first churches established um, outside of Asia in the continent of Europe in Macedonia. Paul knew these converts, many of them individually, personally, led them to Christ, knew this young church, writes to them a letter full of his heart for them. And one of the great themes of Philippians is joy. How you can have joy in the midst of very difficult times. That's why we're calling this series Choosing Joy. Um, we're this week and one more week to finish the, uh, our study together. And it, we're in just two verses, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Before we get to that, though, I want to begin with a little exercise in perspective. You'll see four images on the screen here, and I'm just going to ask you what you see first. Some of you have seen these kinds of things before. First image, do you see, how many of you see a rabbit or a duck? Okay, all the rabbit people, I want you to sit on this side of the room. No? Who saw a rabbit first? Who saw the duck's beak first? Okay, yeah. Eh, about two-thirds. Okay, next image. Do you see lips or a leaf? How many of you are like, I don't see anything yet, Pastor Jeff. I don't know what you're talking about, right? Next image. How many of you see shadows of men or pillars? Oh, right. The funny thing is both images are there. If you, if you, just, you have to have eyes trained to see them. Next image. This is a familiar one, I think, for many of you. How many of you see an old woman with her chin tucked down in her, yeah? How many of you see a young woman with her face turned away? Anybody see that? How many of you don't see anything at all that's recognizable? Okay. <laughs> There's this whole series of these on the internet. It's fun to do. Uh, the idea is that both images are present if you learn to see, if you have eyes trained to see. And there's a sense in which the passage we're going to look at here that Paul has written to the Philippians and to us is training us to see differently, to look differently, to have a different kind of perspective. So let's read. I'll read verses 8 and 9. Actually, I'm going to begin with verses 4 through 9 to give us some context, even though we talked about some of verse 4 last. Excuse me. I'm still getting used to doing this. Ta-da. Verses 4 through 9. I need either a bigger Bible or, or glasses in my head. Okay. Verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So in verse 7, we get the peace of God. In verse 9, we get the God of peace. We'll talk about the connection to those things as we go. This is the kind of passage that gets embroidered on pillowcases, posted on Pinterest, like stenciled on something and hung on a wall. My wife 
Uh, I forgot to bring it with me. I meant to. It's a plaque that was hanging above our kids' bathroom mirror for years, and it had Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, think about these things. I don't know that they did when they were spitting the toothpaste out of their mouth. Think about those things. But it was hanging there nonetheless. But there's so much more for us here. And sometimes our familiarity with a passage, we've heard it before, we know these, these verses, can cause us to miss what's here. I don't want you to miss the meaning here. There's a deep spiritual principle at work that Paul's outlining, outlining for us. Here's the principle. What you think most and most deeply about, that's who you are, who you're becoming. You are what you think most and most deeply about. What occupies most of your mental energy has a great deal to do with the kind of person you are becoming. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, put it this way in the introduction. The most important thing about any of us is what comes into our minds when we think about God. It impacts your character, your life, your outlook. You're directly connected to what's going on in your mind. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, be not, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Most of us think, well, it's my actions that make me who I am. It's the things that I do and accomplish. And we'll get to, we'll get to practice and actions. But true transformation, according to the Bible, begins in how you think. Begins in your mind. Paul makes this very clear to us in many, many places. We avoid being conformed to the patterns and the thinkings and the thoughts and the ideologies of this world by having our minds renewed. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, The ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern men's lives. The ideas and images going on in our minds. Or if you like Mark Twain, what, we, what a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and words. His real life is led in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts, not those other things, are his true history. Well, I think thoughts that lead to action, maybe I would add to what Twain said, but he's right. There's a whole realm of psychology called positive psychology. Who's heard of positive psychology before? Martin Seligman is the founder of, of positive psychology. And what he basically did, and it's a fairly recent uh, in the field of psychology area of study, he made an observation that psychologists in this, in this, in this field have historically only studied unhappy people. They've only deeply studied those who are unhappy. And he thought, what would happen if we studied happy people? If we looked at those who were well-adjusted and doing well in life? And developed a whole field of psychology around studying happy people. He came up with five central practices over decades of study. Here they are. Meditation and prayer. Gratitude. Acts of service and kindness. Healthy relationships. And balance in your life. Gee, all five of those are in Philippians. And in the New Testament. Now this is not, Paul's not giving us the power of positive thinking. But positive psychology is, is touching on something that has been there all along. It's deep spiritual wisdom for us. Paul is talking about here in Philippians is much, much greater than the power of positive thinking. In fact, the word that he uses for think, he says, all, whatever these things are, we're going to go through them. Think about these things is a Greek word, logizomai. It, it's where we get our English word logic in the first half. and the second part of it, it, put together, it means to deeply reflect, con to consider, to reckon, 
sometimes even used in accounting to reckon, to put in the right accounts, to account for properly. Meditate on, think deeply on, focus on, dwell on these things. You cannot expect the peace of God to guard your minds, verse 7, if you're filling your minds with all kinds of junk and garbage. How can we expect the peace of God to to guard our minds, which Paul promises it will do in verse 7, if we're not practicing verse 8? By the time the average American reaches age 65, how many of you have reached that age? One or two of you. They will have spent, you will, well those of you that raised your hand, you have already spent on average eight years in front of a television screen. That's 24-7, 365 for eight years. Television and computer screen, not including your phone. Think about that. Eight years of your life. Maybe you're an exception. Maybe it's only six and a half years for you. That's a long time watching a screen. On average, those who study these things tell us that the average American church-going Christian spends 10 minutes a day or less with spiritual input. That includes the 30 minutes you're you're sitting here with me, averaged out over your week, 10 minutes a day or less with spiritual input. Between five and six hours a day TV, phone, Facebook, Instagram, Netflix, whatever else. So think about that for a minute. Ten minutes a day with spiritual things, the Word of God, sermons, worship. Five to six hours a day watching a a screen. Which do you think will have a more profound shaping influence on how you think and therefore on who you become? This is not a trick question. It's not close. It's a stacked deck. For most of us. So let me present you with a challenge. For the remainder of this sermon and the rest of this week and however long God should lead you, allow verses 8 and 9 to shine a light on any area of your life that God may want to address. Let Philippians 4, 8, and 9 be a, a filter, a lens by which you examine your whole life, your mind, your thought life, and your behavior. Because Paul's saying, I want your whole life, your whole way of thinking and living to be shaped by these things. This requires intentionality, focus of the mind. Richard Foster writes, the decision to set the mind on the higher things is an act of the will. That is why it's called a discipline. It's not something that falls upon our heads. It's the result of a consciously chosen way of life, a way of thinking, and a way of living. Now before we work through this list of these eight things Paul gives us, I want you to notice that Paul uses the phrase whatever three times, or six times, excuse me. He says whatever is, whatever is true, whatever is noble, commendable, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is. It's the Greek word osa. He says this repeatedly. Why? Paul is saying wherever you find it, wherever you come across beauty, truth, what's commendable, excellence, wherever you happen to see it, whenever you come across it, of course, yes, of course, we find those things most prevalent and clearly outlined for us in Scripture. But it's not only there. I think what Paul is saying, be on the lookout for these things. Be the kind of man or woman who's searching for truth, who's pointing out beauty, who recognizes these things in the world. Wherever you find it, whatever it is. Okay, so let's begin and work through the list. First, whatever is true. Whatever is true. Truth, that which corresponds to reality and to the revelation of God in Scripture. Whatever is true. 
We believe as Christians that all truth is God's truth. The primary revelation of God is his son Jesus and his revealed word, the living word and the word which is passed down to us. That's the central primary revelation by which we evaluate all truth. But it's not the only way God has revealed truth to us. All truth is God's truth. And so we should, if God is the God of the universe and made all things, expect to find glimpses and reflections and hints of his truth in all kinds of places, in every field of study, in every part of our culture, even from those people who would reject the reality of God, or at least the Christian God, we might expect to find hints of his truth. One of the great frustrations I have today is that we live in a culture where if, if, you, if you disagree with somebody on one thing, you can't listen to them on anything. This is true politically, isn't it? If I, if I have one disagreement over here with this group, therefore I, I dismiss them outright on every area. Why? Is it possible that somebody could be wrong on one issue but right about something else? I hope so. Otherwise I'm in trouble, right? And we should expect to find truth in all kinds of places. Even with those people who get mo a whole bunch of things wrong. And we should be the kind of people who are looking for that, recognizing it, calling out and, and attributing it to its proper source, the author of all truth. And I would just say we need a continual input of the truth if we're going to be the kind of people who recognize truth in the world. You need the Word of God every day. I know many of you, this, is, this has been a, a pattern in, uh, in your life for years. If it isn't or if you've slipped from that, read the Scriptures every day. We're doing 22 days of prayer right now. If you're not part of that, you can certainly join in. You can, you can start your 22 days tomorrow. And, and catch up because they're all available to you, uh, streamed out on our website, YouTube channel, and Facebook page. And all it is is worship and the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23, working our way through it. An input of the truth every day. If you don't have, if you're, a, if you're, a, if you're not a text, if you are a tech-savvy person, download the YouVersion Bible app. My wife reads through the Bible, or listens through the Bible, I should say. Every morning she gets up and walks the treadmill forever. I can hear it up there pounding, right? And she's got the Bible on repeat, listening her way through. And she can pick the accent, if it's read in Brit the British accent or whatever, to her as she, as she does this. Why? We need a continual input of the truth in our lives. Jesus said in John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. So as we do this, as we have input of the truth into our lives, as we walk through the world looking for the truth where we find it, we should be praying, Spirit, guide me into truth. Reveal truth to me. Because he will. Jesus says that's his job. Our culture is fixated on what is trending, what is popular, what's the prevailing opinion, or what works. But Paul is urging us to focus our minds not on what's popular, not on what's trending, not on what's prevailing, not even what works for you, but what is true. We have to move faster or we won't be able to have time for the next service. Okay, whatever is honorable. Whatever is honorable. Noble, respectable. The word means that which inspires reverence or awe. That which is worthy of its, of its station or status. I remember when Prince Harry, who was kind of the bad boy of the royal family, before he got married and settled down, if he has settled down, and re renounced his royalty, whatever they're doing now, I don't know. But he, uh, this is a number of years ago, he was, uh, you might remember this, he was in Las Vegas, and there was all kinds of tabloid photos of him playing strip poker in Vegas and getting into trouble. Um, and it made all the news, both in Great Britain and in America, and everybody was shocked, and it was a scandal. Here's a question. Um, well, first of all, let me just be clear, as your pastor, I think strip poker in Vegas is a bad idea, in case you're confused, it's not a good idea. But why was that a scandal? Why was it scandalous that a single guy is doing stupid single guy things in Vegas? Why did that make the news? It goes on all the time in Vegas, it's called Sin City. 
It was a scandal because it's Prince Harry, right? He's nobility. He's royalty. And that kind of behavior was beneath his, his station in life, was the idea. There's a sense in which Paul is saying, whatever is honorable, sometimes translated noble, that which is what you're called to, you and I are sons and daughters of the king. We're children of the king. That which fits our calling as sons and daughters of the king. What's honorable, what's respectable, whatever is just, Paul says, right, correct, in accord with God's standards of righteousness. The word for just there is the same word sometimes translated righteousness. It's diakso, meaning God's right standard in the world. There's so much injustice and unrighteousness in the world today. We're bombarded with it, images of it, constantly being pointed out to us. And we should not ignore it. This is not a call to put your head in the sand and pretend like evil and injustice does not exist. As Christ followers, we should be the first to recognize injustice, fight against it, of course. But we should also be the kind of people who look for, see, point out, and celebrate justice. One of the best ways I think we can fight injustice is to recognize when it's being done right. When there is justice in the world and point it out. There's a great deal of good and justice going on all around us. But this doesn't sell. This doesn't get clicks or likes or views. The, 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 me, the news media is not an accurate, accurate portrayal of reality. Whatever channel you're tuned into, Fox News or CNN, uh, because it's a business. It's for profit. Their algorithm is what will keep you engaged. We should be on the lookout for justice that sometimes doesn't get reported on. Just talk to Erin Wise. She sees it all the time. Good things, just things happening here with Shepherd's Heart and many other places. Do you remember when during early on in the pandemic when John Krasinski uh, had the little thing on, uh, on, the, on his Facebook page called Now for Some Good News? Anybody see that? Some Good News? And it, 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 got, it went viral for a while. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. If you don't know, ask somebody younger. They've seen it. it. Because he was just reporting on all the good things happening in the world. Okay, whatever is pure. Whatever is pure. Free from corruption, unstained. The word usually refers to ceremonial purity in the temple, but here it also means moral purity. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3, Paul talks about our call to be pure, to keep ourselves pure, free from corruption. What if just this one virtue, what if there was an app on your phone that you could pull out and activate the purity app, and it filtered out anything from that you would, could possibly see from all of your apps that, on your screen that didn't measure up to this standard, whatever is pure. Wonder what would be left to see. As you scroll through Facebook, everything's just blocked, right? Oh, a puppy. Okay, that's pure, right? Uh, you, you don't see anything else. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or beautiful, pleasing, producing affection, whatever makes you exclaim, oh, that is beautiful. I was just remarking with Linda Steele before the service started. She's, um, I like her Facebook page, but she's always posting beautiful fall colors. Fall's my favorite time of year, although it, it's fleeting. It's got great beauty, and, but I think it's one of the things C.S. Lewis wrote about fall is that it, it, makes, it creates a longing and a hunger in us because it doesn't stay. Didn't Robert Frost write a poem about this? Nothing gold can stay, right? I, whatever makes you pause, takes your breath away, and you go, that's beautiful, that's lovely. Sometimes that's going to be something in, in nature, in creation. Sometimes that's going to be the behavior of a person. Someone you see, somebody doing something that's beautiful, displaying the character of Christ. The, the word, the Greek word is prosphiles. 
That's, it's a, taken from Greek philosophy. The beauty that calls forth something from within us is the idea that you can't help exclaiming about. Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, evoking admiration, worth commending, of good repute. The, the Greek word is euphema. It's where we get our English word euphemism for. It means to speak accurately or write about, well reported of. Psalm 145, verse 4, One generation will commend your works to another, and I will also declare your mighty acts. And then in Acts 16, Paul says, I commend to you our, our sister Phoebe, who's a partner with me in the gospel. So we can commend the works of God, and we can commend the people of God at the same time. Both people, creation, things may be lovely and commendable. Now, after this list of six virtues, we have two more. Paul shifts kind of the way he talks about them from whatever is to talk, saying, if there is any. And he gives what I would say are two sort of summary words or phrases, virtues, to, to sum up or wrap up the entire list. He says, if there is any excellence, excellence, moral goodness, virtue, highest character or quality. Again, borrowed from Greek philosophy, the word is erete. Uh, literally, is that, that which is uh, your, the pursuit of life. Excellence. That exalts and glorifies God, not ourselves. Excellence of character and excellence of what's produced. Sometimes we get this wrong. We think of in our human, in our, in our, in the world, we think excellent is better than everyone else, right? We, excellence, we rate excellence on a, a human scale. I would think the, I think the better definition of excellence for us is doing the very best you can with what, with what God has given you. We don't all have the same resources. We tend to value only the latter, excellence and outcome in America. But excellence of character matters deeply. And then lastly, the great wrap-up phrase, praiseworthy. If, it, if there's anything worthy of praise, that which moves us to praise God. C.S. Lewis, in his book Reflections on the Psalms, said he, before he became a Christian, he used to think it was uh, rather selfish of God, or that God is sort of an insecure being, that he always needs our praise. Why the, would the God of the universe need us to keep praising him and giving him honor? I mean, isn't he self-assured enough that does he keep needing us to do that? And then he realized something about the nature of reality. He says, the world rings with praise. Everywhere you look, lovers praising lovers, people praising their favorite book, their favorite movie. Did you see that show? Did you read that book? Did you see that sunset? Have you been to this place? Have you tried this dessert? We praise things we delight in. We just naturally do it. And he says the reason we do that is because the praise not only expresses, but completes our enjoyment of the thing. It is, it's a pointed consummation, he says. I think this is so profoundly true. When you see something, read something, hear something, experience something that thrills you, that you think is worthy of praise, don't you want to share that thing with somebody? Don't you, isn't there a part of you that naturally wants to express that and share that with someone that you care deeply about? That's praise. Well, what being in the universe is worth it of our praise more than Christ himself? I want to share that with somebody. It's, what, why, it's why we want to come to church together and be in person to share the praise of his glory. Worthy of praise. Really, if you think about it, what Paul is calling us to do here is to bring all of our life under the lens of Christ. Because 
He is the one worthy of our praise. He is the one who's true. He is honorable. He is just. He is lovely. He is commendable. He is excellent. And he is praiseworthy. All these things are pointing us to him. So two quick questions for you for discernment. When you're walking, when you're wondering, does this fit, Paul? Does this fit your category of those things which I'm called to think about, meditate on, chew on, and fill my mind with? First, is it consistent with Scripture? It's always, there are so many things in our culture right now that sound good if you're thinking purely from a human point of view or from our culture's point of view. It sounds right to me. That sounds good. I guess that's true. But is it? Is it accurate? Human sexuality. What is, what is the definition of marriage? There's a number of things that in our culture increasingly sound good, but is it? So first, is it consistent with Scripture? Second, does it exalt Christ? Is it glorifying or exalting man or Jesus? Now, Paul says, whatever that you come across is consistent with Scripture that exalts Christ and fits these categories, think about them deeply. Ponder, mull over, let it sink into your mind. The image I like to use is a, is, is a, a tea bag. What happens if you dip it twice and throw it away and, and drink? What kind of tea is that? That's weak tea. <laughs> That's no good, right? You've got to let it steep. And if you're a good Englishman or woman, then you know you don't use tea bags. You let the leaves sit in the pot and steep for a long time. Why? So all the flavor gets soaked into the, into the water, in, and the tea beca- becomes infused part of it. There's a sense in which Paul's saying that to us. Sit with these things. Stay with these things. Let these things be the, that which fills your mind and become part of you. Because there's a big difference between Eastern meditation, which is emptying yourself for emptying's sake, and Christian meditation. Christian meditation is not to empty our minds and stay empty, but to be filled with something. The thoughts of God. The Christian life is not just about avoiding the bad, but being filled with the good. For too long, too many of us, I think, think about the Christian life as just not getting polluted, just not getting corrupted, just avoiding all the bad thoughts and the bad things and the bad people. That's not the call. The call is to be filled with. My wife will often tease me that my memory cells are used up with C.S. Lewis quotes, movie trivia, and sports trivia. And there's no room for, like, remembering when I have to be home or who to pick up or where to be at what time. She may be right about that. But there's a lesson there. If we're filled up with something, there's no room for something else. So we empty ourselves, right? Why? To be filled with thoughts of God. So there's increasingly less and less room, less and less tolerance, less and less interest for the filth and corruption of the world. I'm not saying that to you as somebody who's there. I enjoy stuff too often watching, thinking about that really has no place in my mind or heart. Maybe you do as well. I love in this list that there's no negative statements in verse 8. It's all framed in the positive, isn't it? Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable. It doesn't say anything negative in there. I'm prone, frankly, one of my, I think, uh, struggles is that I'm always prone to ask the question, what's wrong with this? What's the problem here? I do it when I listen to other preachers, which is the hubris of that, I freely confess, is ridiculous because I know they're doing it to me, and probably some of you are, right? I'm tempted to be the critic always, to deconstruct things, to watch things uh, on TV and think, well, that's ridiculous, or that would never happen that way, or just to be always asking what the problem is, what's, what's wrong. And there's, it's good to, discernment has its place, but I think perhaps I'd be better off if I began to ask more often, what's right about this? What's good about this? What's true about this? What's lovely or excellent or praiseworthy about this? 
even if it's only 10% and it's 90% bad, right? I want to be the kind of man and person, follower of Jesus, who's on the lookout for the good and sees it. I remember reading a, a journal entry, the, the selected journals of, of Robert Service, a, not a Christian but a poet of the Yukon, and he, re- he remarked about a friend of his who was a painter who painted these mountain vistas in, uh, in the Yukon Territory, who said, he had looked so long for beauty that he'd come to see it everywhere. Isn't that a great phrase? He'd looked so long for beauty that he'd come to see it everywhere. Like he was trained to see it. Too many of us, I think, are concerned about keeping what we keep out. But I believe Paul is calling the Philippians, who are living in a world when within two years they're going to experience oppression, which we can hardly imagine what we're to let in. I want my mind, I want to let into my mind and my life as much of the beauty, glory, goodness of God as I possibly can. Don't you? Don't you want to let in more and more of who he is? You should not if that's you. Hmm? Not not off. Friends, don't you want more of the beauty, goodness, truth, commendability, excellence of Jesus in your mind, in your heart, in your life? Don't we need that right now? Aren't, don't you feel bombarded with all the, that's, that's opposite of that in our culture? Now, last verse, verse 9. We think about these things, we meditate about these things, we dwell on them, we, let, we saturate them in our minds. Why? So that we live differently. Verse 9, Apostle Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So first, think about these things so that you can practice these things. Right thinking leads to right living, right action, in other words. The Christian life is not just a mental exercise. It's not just private meditation. It should produce something in us, a certain character and quality of life. So we think on these things so that we may live and act on them. Practice is the Greek word prasso. It means to exercise, perform, or carry out. Most often used to describe an athlete's training. Repetition over and over and over again. So it becomes like habitual, like muscle memory, spiritually speaking. Uh, My reaction, my knee-jerk reaction is to praise, to, to glorify God, to point out the truth. Is yours? Mine isn't always. And that idea of repetition and, and practice <laughs> reminds me of when I was playing um, football in high school. My, my high school coach was a firm believer in repetition. We had like five plays, but we really knew those five plays. We would repeat them over and over and over again. I remember one particular time I was a sophomore. We were practicing this play. We couldn't get it right. And the defense knows what we're doing, so they're cheating. There's no possible way and t- we're going to get this right. My coach was getting dark. He had all of us pull our cars up. And the parents were waiting and point their headlights on the f- practice field so we could still see. I still remember just going in over and over and over again. Why? So we would, just, we would have it right. I think there's something Paul's saying here to us. Practice these things. Repeat these things. Let them become ingrained in who you are. And then Paul says, learned and received. He used this phrase, learned and received, heard and seen. I want to take those in two parts real briefly as we wrap up here. Learned and received, he says. What you've learned and received. These are two Greek words. The word for learned is the word mathetes. It's the, that word is translated as disciple. It means learner or student. What you, as a disciple of Jesus, have learned from me and received. The received word is the same word Paul used in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, when he says, that which I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he gives the gospel. That Christ was, died according to the scriptures, was raised the third day according to the scriptures. So these two words together, he's talking about the authoritative apostolic tradition. 
the teaching of Jesus, the gospel passed down, which you have learned from me as a disciple and received from me, which I received from others. You have received something as a Christian. Something has been passed to you and to me. It's the message of Jesus. It's the good news. So what do you have, what do you have learned and received from me? And then he says, heard and seen in me. So not just my teaching, but you've, look at my life, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look at my life. This is, these things have to go together. You can't divorce the authoritative teaching from the life of the follower. Can you say that to somebody? Look at my life. Look at my life. Paul says, what you've heard me teach you, what you've received that I received and have passed on to you, the message of Christ, and what you've observed in me, the way I've lived, the way I've behaved, the way I am among you. Practice these things. Put them into practice. Can we say this? Paul then finishes by bringing us back to this final line, and the God of peace will be with you. This takes us back to verse 5 of chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 3, when, when, or four, chapter 4, verse 5, when Paul says that we should live, our reasonableness be known to all, gentleness be known to all, for the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near. This is the, the central reality of this whole passage, this whole chapter. God is with you. The peace of God will guard you because the God of peace is with you. But you have a part to play in that, and so do I. What is that? Whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is commendable, whatever is praiseworthy, think about these things. And that which you have received and heard and seen, practice it. Put it into practice. That's what we're called to do. That's what Paul is writing to these Christians living in Philippi who are on the precipice of facing persecution. That's what he's saying to us. 21st century believers in comfortable suburban Chicagoland, facing an election in a little over a week, and the whole world feels like it's on edge. He's saying, whatever's true, whatever's just, whatever's right, whatever's excellent, think about these things, but don't forget what you've received. Put that into practice. That's what you need, and that's what the world needs. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this ancient wisdom, which is so profoundly relevant to us today. We thank you that you have called us and given us something, passed something down to us. Forgive us for taking that for granted. We ask your forgiveness that are for filling our minds with all the wrong things. Fearful thoughts, anxious thoughts, ideologies of our culture. Help us by your grace, Holy Spirit. Lead us into all truth that we might be the kind of people who see and recognize and praise all the good of you, Lord Jesus, wherever we find it. We pray this in your name. Amen.